Our topic tonight is on sexual health, which is not exactly something you hear talked about, especially in church circles every day or every week. Um, and for full disclosure, it was originally going to be women's health, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not just sexual health, uh, but before you close the window or, or tune us out, guys, just stick with us because there will be quite a few things that will be relevant to you and would be good for you to know. So don't tune out just yet. Um, so, but just so that you know, probably m most of what we talk about will be kind of heavily geared to women. And as you can see, we are all women. So, <laughs> but, but don't, don't be scared away stick with us. Um, we, you're, you're very welcome to, to be with us. And also I want to say, uh, feel free to submit your questions either in the comments or by direct message. We have a lot to cover already, but we'll try to cover any questions that come in as well if we can. Um, with that said, I'll say a prayer to open and we'll get started. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for this chance, um, this space, this technology to allow us to meet and discuss the topic of sexual health and women's health. Lord, please guide our discussion um, and help us to understand things um, better and understand your plan for our lives, not, um, not just in our faith, but how that applies to our personal and physical health. We thank you for hearing our prayer and pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So um, let's start with some introductions. We're, we're very privileged to have with us a couple of our very own physicians from the NEC. Um, and I just want to say that they also appear on some marriage conversations that are live streams on YouTube and Facebook. <laughs> what would be the best way for people to connect with you on, um, on that platform? Um, so you can either message directly to Can We Just Talk, which is the um, kind of talk show that we do on Facebook and YouTube. But if you have any questions directly, um, feel free to just send me a, a mess personal message on Facebook or just follow me or send me a message on Instagram. I don't, I don't mind. So my name on Instagram is Nini Cams and on Facebook, it's just Winnie Campbell. Oh, great. And also contact us on Instagram at the Can We Just Talk page. I think it's Can We Just Talk 20. Yeah. Instagram page. Um, you can drop us an email at canwejusttalk20 at gmail.com as well. If you've got any topics you'd like us to discuss or any questions, mm -hmm. that's how you can contact us. Great. And let's hear from you who are you what do you do and why are you qualified to talk to us about the subjects go on stacy <laughs> so i'm stacy um i qualified as a doctor in 2011 so that's nine years now i've been working um and i started specializing in obstetrics and gynecology seven years ago so that covers all of women's reproductive health really um so that's a bit about me. I don't know what else to say, really. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, um, so I graduated the same year as Stacey, so I've been working as a doctor since 2011. Um, I've taken a more of a meandering way around medicine, but my specialty is A&E, which I've been working in for over the past three years. So, yeah, and we're both working as registrars in our speciality. So. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. Um, so first of all, why, why are we here? Why are we here on Zoom having this conversation about sexual health, about women's health? Why not just Google? And I know it's doc the doctor's best friend. <laughs> why not just Google all these things? Um, I think it's a really important conversation to have. Um, there's been quite a few surveys actually that have shown that women in general, our knowledge of our reproductive system is quite poor. And I think we tend not to seek out information for fear of embarrassment or being judged or stigmas. So I think it's quite good that we can get together and have this conversation, particularly in this forum. Um, and as for why to not use Google, 
I mean, the problem with the internet, as good as it is, is that anyone can post anything on there. I mean, Wikipedia is your prime example. I could go on there and change a page to say anything I want. Um, and it's kind of sifting through that information and working out what's coming from a reputable source and what isn't. And that can be quite difficult for, I think, the average person. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and also, I would say that um, we had this discussion before we went live. Like, I wish that somebody had had this conversation with me from like a church platform when I was courting, dating, just growing up, basically, because it isn't something that you're told you know in a like in a balanced way but still kind of hold true to our principles so as soon as Echo and Adam told me about this I was more than happy to jump on board because I just think it's such a, a really good topic that we really need to talk about and be more open and honest like Stacey said talking about it. Okay so that's a good explanation of why not to do Google and why we're here. What what role we we're Christians, we're Adventists. So how does our perspective on the topic differ? Like what does what difference does that make um, for us compared to just the average Joe or Jane just on the street in this in the subject? I think it's um, and I'm gonna say the word straight away. I think it's because of the way that we view sex, like from a Christian perspective, particularly Adventist, Adventist perspective, we sometimes forget that God did create sex to be a beautiful thing, something that was just more than just procreation. And I think sometimes because that's all we're ever told, we kind of wonder what's wrong, what's right, you know, um, and we have to basically decide um, and filter ourselves what the world tells us, because basically the world will say anything goes, you know, just do what you want to to make yourself happy. Whereas God has created this act to be a beautiful thing between a married man and woman. Um, but there is stuff behind it that because nobody else talks about all the stuff that goes before it happens. Um, we can forget that. So I, I do want to say, like, as a Christian, there are principles in it that make it very make us use in a different way that's different from the world but there's still a beauty in it that often we forget because we're just too scared to talk about it. I think as well that um, I can't remember who I was discussing this with the other day but I think because the church shies away from it so much and we don't discuss it there's always that curiosity element particularly when you're a young person and you'll as Winnie said you will go elsewhere to find your information and because we've made it so taboo I think mm. we I don't want to say we push people into experimenting, sorry, <clears throat> and trying it too early, but I think it kind of does have that effect, although undesired. I think maybe if we were a bit more open about it and people had more information at their disposal, they wouldn't be so, um, I can't think of the word now, so eager to go and try it out too early. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about just, not just, sex itself but just sexual health or women's health or um say birth control what does the adventist or, or christian perspective have to say about that like for me i think we just have a different view of of life of of why we're created of our purpose for creation and that should affect like my body is not my own to just do whatever I like with. Um, and that should, that affects like, maybe I need to be more aware of my, 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 my health, my, what to do with my, my reproductive system so that I can glorify God, even in that aspect of my life, mm -hmm. God created us beautifully and, and we need to, respect that and not just let ourselves go or or misuse it and to me that just gives gives it more our topic more weight mm. yeah. definitely yeah, definitely agree with that I think we shy away from contraception a lot in church as well because possibly because we don't understand it or how it works <clears throat> sorry and there's always that concern um I know I've had friends been told that they shouldn't be using contraception because children are a gift from God and if you use contraception you're blocking your blessing and <laughs> I, 
don't think that's really true. <laughs> and I don't think that's the best advice to give. So yeah, I think we could do better. <laughs> I, like, I actually looked up to make sure that I wasn't preaching any heresy, especially because my husband's a pastor and I don't want to be blacklisted. But um, I looked up and the General Conference does not um, shun any form of contraception at all. And it's all for family planning. Obviously, like abortion is a no-no. We don't even need to debate or like go into that. But in terms of contraception, um, I remember when I was having premarital counseling, um, the discussion was, well, where does life begin? And from a kind of biological sense, from my own kind of scientific understanding, I would say that life probably begins the minute the, the sperm and the egg meet, but they actually implant in the womb. Because there's so many times when the sperm and the egg could meet, but nothing happens. Like talk to anybody who's had been trying for a baby for and missed cycles upon cycles upon cycles. And so if you think about that, all the methods of contraception are basically stopping that implantation from happening. Um, so that's why I would, I would personally, so I, I'm going to say it is my personal opinion, but from what I've kind of prayed about, read about, made sure I'm not preaching any heresy about, I'd say don't feel guilty about needing to use contraception. Um, LNG White even said herself um, that, you know, the thought that, that having a child, if you having children after children, it just doesn't just affect your family and your core nuclear structure, it affects the community, like the pressures on the population. So we have to be sensible about it. So, of course, it's something that we, we really have to take seriously and, and not just ignore and think it's a bad thing. Mm. I would add to that, there's so many, so many different options. I mean, they're categorized in lots of different ways. So you've got like your, your non-hormonal options and then your hormonal options, which can encompass like your combined um, with two hormones in or your single hormone options. There's short acting, there's long acting, there's permanent. There's so many different types that I think to categorically say you can't use any of them isn't, isn't helpful. Um, mm. They work in different ways as well. So some of them work by stopping or delaying ovulation. Some of them work by um, thickening the mucus in the cervix to stop the sperm from reaching the egg. Um, mm. So there's lots of different options to consider. Mm. And I'd say, even though probably like what, Stacey can give the, the better percentage, but like 80, 90% of them are all, the onus lies on the woman. It's something that you should talk about with, you know, your your husband, your, your wife and decide together. Because, you know, for some people, the hormonal ones might have something that affects your marriage. We're gonna talk about PMT hopefully at some time later, but like um, for me, Oral contraceptions were, were a difficult one for me because it would make me a different person because of the hormones. Um, and I'm sure there's some women out there that can relate to that. So like Stacey says, there's not just one option, there's so many, and it's something that you, you shouldn't just leave on the woman to decide for herself. I think it is something you should talk with your partner about your, and, and decide together really prayerfully. Definitely. So, so what if there, I, I think there probably are some people, some, couples that are engaged that are watching how would you suggest they go about looking at the options and making a decision is there any can you give any tips for deciding and then is there a point or when should you try some out like like what's kind of the time frame yeah. to start trying them out <laughs> hopefully it would be before your wedding but like how much before yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I think in terms of finding information, uh, the NHS website has lots of good information there. They list all the different types and also how effective they are because not all contraceptives are created equal. Um, and when you go on the website, you'll see something called perfect use and something called typical use. So perfect use is as it says on the tin, you're using the contraceptive perfectly, exactly as it was designed to be used. Typical use is, so you're not quite using it fully. So say if you're taking the pill, you might have forgotten to take one or two. You may have got your injection a little bit late. Um, and so all of those things affect how effective the contraception is. So that's one thing to consider. Um, other factors to consider are how good you are with remembering things, because if you're not good at remembering to take something every day, then the short acting things are, are not for you. You will get pregnant. Um, <laughs> a long acting method will be better for you. 
Um, there are other factors that you do have to consider as well that are a bit more medical that your family doctor would discuss with you. So certain medical conditions will exclude some options for you. Um, if your BMI is over 30 or over 35, if you're aged over 35, if you smoke, there's lots of different factors that have to be considered. But I, I would say just for a begin, somewhere to begin, the NHS website is quite good um, in that regard. Um, as to when to start trying them, um, that's a difficult one. <laughs> you don't. Yeah. Very slow. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I mean, I would say with the barrier methods, obviously you can only use those during the act. And same with the like family planning. Well, family planning actually, you could probably start beforehand because that relies on you tracking changes in your body. So tracking your temperature, tracking what your cervical mucus looks like. You can do that for a couple of months beforehand just to get a feel for when your fertile window is. Um, so that one, uh, the, fertility awareness yeah. method. Sorry? Yeah. Like fertility awareness method. Yeah, that's the one. Um, but barrier methods, coitus interruptus, you can only use those at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, other methods like the hormonal ones. Uh, when to try it beforehand? I think a month beforehand should be sufficient really to give you protection. Um, we generally start most methods on the first day of your period. Um, so as long as you've started it at least one period before you're planning to start intercourse, then you should be covered. Um, you'll be fine from that point of view. Um, if it's more in terms of trying to work out which ones suit you and side effects, then you may want to give yourself a few extra months. Like you need to kind of switch or something if it doesn't yeah. suit you. Yeah, um, and so I, I guess probably like a six month period would be quite good to see how it reacts to your body, how your body reacts to it rather, whether if you're getting any side effects, whether or not they'll settle down over time or actually would it be better for you to just change. Um, but I think there's quite a few women who are using contraception for other reasons beforehand anyway, such as period uh -huh. control, um, if you suffer from really heavy periods or really painful periods, then contraception is often one of the options that we offer in terms of managing those types of symptoms. Somebody just mentioned that in the comments, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then coil, that's also something that maybe um, you're, you should get uh, ahead of time to see kind of how your body takes it what would you say about coils yes um so there's two types of coil um there's the copper coil which is they're both very small kind of t-shaped pieces of plastic and, and copper if you get in the copper one so the copper one they both sit inside your womb the copper one works by causing kind of an inflammatory reaction to the lining of the womb, which makes it hostile for the uh, fertilized egg to implant. And the other coil contains hormone, which just gets released locally in the, in the womb. And it thins the lining of the womb, which again, kind of impairs the egg from implanting once it's been fertilized. Um, again, those can be inserted anytime in the month before, um, and they stay in place for a long, long time. So I wouldn't need, you wouldn't need to worry about those. What I would say though, is that they can be quite difficult to insert if you haven't had children before so they may not want to be your first your preferred option um the only other thing i would say about starting contraception before you embark on intercourse is that some women say that some types of contraception reduce their libido and you may not realize that until you come off it later on when you want to have children um, so that's always something to consider as well. And I think that's why the point that Winnie mentioned about deciding with your partner is, is quite important. Mm, exactly. Those are really excellent um, points to consider. Thank you. Um, what about emergency contraception? When is it right to take it? What are the effects? So there's three, currently in the UK, there's three different types of emergency contraception. Um, two of them are pills, and one of them is the copper coil that I already mentioned. And they all work in slightly different ways. Um, so the first pill is called Levanel. Um, it contains a type of progesterone hormone. And the way that that works is that it delays ovulation. And it also um, thickens the mucus in the cervix to try and prevent the sperm from eating the egg in the first place. 
Um, that one you can take up to three days after you've had unprotected sex. Um, it works best if you take it in the first day though. I think the efficacy if you take it in the first day is about 90 something percent. If you take it on the third day, the chances of it preventing pregnancy drop to about 50 something percent. So you want to try and take that as soon as possible. And also because its primary mechanism of action is to delay ovulation, you need to know where you are in your cycle. So if you've already ovulated, there's no point taking it. Um, the second option is a pill called Ella one That one you can take up to five days after you've um, had unprotected sex. It also works by delaying ovulation primarily, but there is some debate about whether or not it also prevents the fertilized egg from implanting. So depending on when you believe life begins, so if you believe it begins at implantation, then that's not an issue for you. If you believe that it begins the moment the sperm meets the egg and it starts dividing, then that's probably something you'd want to avoid. Um, and a similar principle with the coil, the copper coil, because the copper coil prevents implantation of the fertilized egg. Again, you'll have the same dilemma, depending mm. on when you believe um, life begins, really. Um, and the copper coil can also be used up to five days after you've had unprotected sex and you leave it in place, which is why it's the preferred option for most um, healthcare professionals, because you can just leave it in place for five, 10 years. Whereas after you've had the pill, then you're relying on the woman coming back for some more reliable contraception in the future to try and avoid the same thing happening again, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I really didn't know any of the options for emergency contraception. so. I'm being enlightened. <laughs> you mentioned that that um, I was going to pick up on, but it left me. So <laughs> we'll move on. Um, what about so? Oh, um, back to actually what, something Winnie said at the beginning of the discussion about contraception. If you're interested, the great the the general conference actually has an official statement on mm. the transition on, on um, birth control and contraception, and I think you can just look it up on Adventist.org or or something like that. I just googled it, and yeah. it's a pretty clear, concise statement, and it's really yeah. good. Um, something else that I'm just putting my to sense in not my not a medical opinion but about like the types of contraception that make the 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 womb an inhospitable environment for implantation somebody i i read that breastfeeding also does the same thing in in making the womb inhospitable for implantation and if if you follow the line of reasoning that that that's like making, I don't know, making the woman hospitable for implantation kind of creates an abortion, then breastfeeding would be something that you want to avoid too. So <laughs> I, I thought, hmm, maybe yeah, that's kind of a good <laughs> What do you think about that? That is not correct. <laughs> um, breastfeeding prevents you from getting pregnant after you've had a baby by preventing ovulation. So there's okay. no egg there to be fertilized. It doesn't mm. really have any impact on the lining of the womb. Okay. And the importance of it as well is, um, Stacey can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is basically is it, it has to be, it's more reliable if you're breastfeeding literally like solely on demand when your baby starts weaning, that that um, reliability of it being a contraception is gone, or if you're doing mixed bottles, mixed breastfeeding, that also you can't rely on it as a form of contraception as well. And so. also you can't have had a period. Yeah. You not have had a period since you've given birth. If you've had a period, you need other contraception. Yeah, I think most, most hospitals here make it clear just don't mess around. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Because <laughs> they know how it's fickle you are. You know, your body needs time to, to rejuvenate after it's been so depleted by creating this life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to um, ah, fertility. Um, a lot of a lot of young women who are getting older feel like 
I need to get married. I need to get married. My clock is ticking. So what are the truths and misconceptions about clock tick, clocks ticking? <laughs> um, it is unfortunately true. Um, you are born with all the eggs you will ever have. Women don't produce eggs, whereas men produce sperm every day, all day, basically, since they once have gone through puberty. Women, you will never have any more eggs. Um, so each girl baby is born with approximately one million eggs and they start to decrease from the moment you're born. Um, so that by the time you hit puberty, you may only have say 400,000 eggs left. Um, and while that still sounds like a lot, um, and you may be thinking, oh, but I only really release one egg every month when I, when I ovulate. Actually, what happens during your cycle is that at the start of each cycle, a number of egg containing sacs will start to mature. Um, and so while you may only, while only one becomes dominant and gets released from the ovary, actually maybe up to a thousand follicles will have started to mature. And because they don't get released, they simply get reabsorbed into the body. So you're losing at least a thousand eggs each month, if not more. Um, so that's one aspect. Also, your egg quality diminishes as you get older. And so your chances of things like miscarriage increase and your chances of things um, of your child, if you do get pregnant, um, the baby having conditions such as Down syndrome, they all increase as well. Um, I mean, the time that you have the lowest chance of miscarriage is between the ages of 20 and 24. Your risk of miscarriage then is about 11%, but then it rises quite sharply after the age of 35. It jumps up to 25%. Once you're over 40, it's 51%. Over the age of 45, it's 93%. So your chances definitely do go up quite dramatically. Um, I wouldn't say that's a reason to rush and get married, but no. it is unfortunately the sad reality. Um, yeah, by the time you're over 40, 50% of your eggs will be abnormal um, in terms of the genetics, um, which is why conditions such as Down syndrome are more common the older you get. But being the happy doctor who doesn't work in opposite guiding, um, <laughs> I'll attempt to give some hope, even though everything that Stacey is saying is absolutely true. Um, we can't take away from the fact that we are like Bible-believing and Christians. So we've not only got like, science on our side and and everything else we've also got God on our side so if God is gonna allow you to have a family I'm saying this as a pastor's wife now not as a doctor um God will like bless if it's within his will that to happen and I can't like like if you ask Stacey about the people who see her maybe who are trying for a baby like stress I'm sure can be one of those things that can stop yeah. you from in the first place anyway so if you're like thinking oh my gosh I'm not I'm, my, my, my eggs are failing I've got to have a baby now I said I'd give myself another year but nope we're gonna get on it tonight honey um <laughs> don't put that pressure on don't yourself do that, no because <laughs> it. it's just gonna take away like I said right at the beginning the the reason why God made sex um of course the the, the may forming and procreation and everything else but like there's got to be some aspect of joy in it too um but I'm not dismissing anything that Stacey said because it is true but you know, don't get the hope. I also had a baby at 90, so it is possible. And I am, I am a baby of somebody who had a baby over the age of 40, so I'm like the miracle. So we can also, we can, you know, there's, there's hope for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I see, I've seen plenty of women who have had babies who have been absolutely fine, completely healthy, and they were conceived after they were over the age of 40 or 45. So while I've given you the statistics, it's not impossible. So please, as Winnie said, don't rush out and think, I've got to do it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the case of, uh, of miscarriage, do you know of what kind of support is available that, that's out there? And then also on, on our side, kind of as a church, how can we help and support people going through miscarriage or even infertility issues? Um, so there's a lot of good support groups and websites for miscarriage. Um, somewhere that we usually direct women to is the Miscarriage Association. Um, they have a good website, there's lots of leaflets, they have forums where you can talk to others who are going through the same thing as you. Um, for those who may miscarry a little later on in the pregnancy, there's things like SANS, which is the cell birth and neonatal death 
um, charity and there's Tommy's as well who do a lot of research into miscarriage so there are quite a few support organizations out there um, as for what we could do as a church or church family I think I think one of the main things I would say is for people to be more open and to kind of get rid of the stigma surrounding it. Um, you'd be really surprised. I mean, miscarriage is really common. It affects one in four women and we really don't talk about it. Um, and even me seeing it every day in my day job as a doctor and in my specialty, I was still really shocked and blindsided when it happened to me. Um, after I had my firstborn, <clears throat> I, two years later, I had a couple of car accidents and each time I was pregnant, each time I lost the baby. And it was really devastating. Um, and it's only when I spoke to people and they were like, oh, you know what, that happened to me. I really get what you're going through. That was so, so helpful. And I think you can, it's often a really lonely experience and you can feel really isolated, particularly because people don't understand it and they don't know what to say. Um, yeah. And I think often people can say things that are well-meaning, but that are really hurtful. Um, mm. Things like, oh, it was meant to be, or it wasn't meant to be, or, you know, it was God's will, or, you know, I have a friend who couldn't carry babies. And, you know, they say all these things. And I, I think a lot of it is because they're, they're afraid. They don't know what to say. And they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And inadvertently they do. Um, but these things can be really painful. Like, what do you mean it was God's will for my baby to die? And I think also as well, people can often trivialize miscarriage. Like they'll ask you, oh, how many weeks you were? Like it mattered. I mean, to the woman who's lost the baby, you've still essentially lost the baby. It doesn't matter if it was six weeks or 26 weeks or if you'd given birth, it all feels the same because you're more, you dreamt of it as a baby and you had hopes and dreams of the future. And so you've really suffered a real loss. And I think often people can trivialize that. Um, mm -hmm. And one more thing I think is really important is to stop asking people when they're planning to have a baby um, because you just don't know what people are going through. I remember when I had my first miscarriage, I'd gone to town <laughs> to get my eyebrows done. And then the woman doing my eyebrows, I had Aaliyah with me, and the woman doing my eyebrows said, oh, don't you think it's time you had a second one? And I wanted to be like, I'm miscarrying right now. And you have no idea. Of course I want a second one. Um, and so saying things like that, again, can be really painful to women, because as I said, you just don't know what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Completely. And it seems a bit um, ironic, really, that, that, that you, the same people who will tell you that like um, contraception is wrong because life starts at, at starts from the, when the sperm meets the egg are the same people who will tell you, oh, it's OK. You know, you haven't had the baby yet. You don't you, you don't quite feel it yet like if if they have that attitude then it doesn't really make sense but I think from the minute you know you're pregnant you you have a child that you like Stacey have have hopes and dreams about so it is definitely something that we need to be more open and honest and talk about I think maybe as a church we could maybe form some support groups for women who are going through these problems because infertility is actually really common as well it's not really something that's talked about when you're having your puberty talks in school like everyone just assumes they'll be able to get pregnant and it's only when they have problems they're they're shocked but infertility actually affects about one in seven couples it's very very common isn't it getting isn't it increasing um i think it is we are seeing it more um and that's probably due to a combination of things like lifestyle factors as well um and maybe people trying later on in life um, but yeah, it's definitely a lot more common than people realize. That's, thank you for sharing from your experience. And, and also, I, I think it's such a, a good point that we can support people essentially by not asking sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> not asking the wrong thing. <laughs> um, yeah, and maybe asking other questions instead. Mm. what what are some other questions that you think would be better um I think for me in general I just steer away from asking people when they're planning to have children or don't they think they need more um, <laughs> I, I, and I, I, 
Yeah, same. I try and make a mental note to not. I yeah. find it so hard, especially couples that like I've seen date, get married. It's like, oh, it's time. But I try so hard not to um, mm. because I, I just I'm just aware of that subconscious pressure. And I, I don't think it's necessary, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And I think mm. if somebody tells you that they're going through something like that, the best thing you can just do is to just listen and just say you're sorry and not to try and explain it away with kind of these trite bible passages that we are our go-to's because it really doesn't help very good um let's keep the that conversation going and maybe from here see if we can if there's interest in starting some support groups maybe or something like that mm. um could you repeat you said there's a organization called SANS or so SANS sorry oh say what does it stand for again stillbirth in neonatal death something I can't remember what the last one <laughs> <is>. <laughs> but, um, that's a good organization as well that has lots of resources and support there great great um so let's move on to something perhaps a little a little lighter and maybe <laughs> more um <laughs> more relevant to just about every woman out there and that is like taking care of our 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 health down there our vagina or our our reproductive system what can what can we do i know uh, somebody asked the question to me um to ask here like what about like all these different washes like FemFresh and are they safe to use? They're really being pushed a lot now. Are they just a waste of money? Are they harmful, beneficial? What do you think about that? And then also you can answer at the same time maybe about hair removal, laser hair removal, why, why not? I'll let Winnie take that one. I can bring you to take that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, with regards to the feminine washes, uh, my personal opinion is that they're a waste of time and a waste of money. I think they're quite unnecessary. Um, I guess the company will show their own evidence that they, they're beneficial, but the evidence is coming from the company, so be mindful of that. The most important thing is that you're not using heavily fragrant soaps and perfumes inside because that damages the natural flora. So the natural bacteria that live there usually, it disrupts that. And then it makes you more prone to infection and odors. So just simple water, plain water, plain soaps. And you shouldn't be putting anything inside at all. Um, so FemFresh, if you want to, you can. Um, they, they claim it's biologically balanced, et cetera, et cetera, but it's unnecessary at the end of the day. Mm. And just, I was going to say one extra thing um, that, that another ironic thing is if you do tend to um, use heavy soaps down there and you alter the pH that's actually when it tends to smell a little bit funny because you can get a condition called bacterial vaginosis um, which is basically where the um, flora the like the bacteria that makes the offensive smell even though you're actually ironically trying to keep it clean down there happens so I kind of second no heavy perfume soaps and things but um yeah fem fresh i like to waste my money but it makes me feel better about things so <laughs> I'm keep using it. <laughs> in the appropriate parts according to dr picard yeah so on the outside only <laughs> um, I do do. yeah i don't think there's really anything against it I haven't seen any evidence against it anyway. I mean, there's always the argument that if God puts hair on your body, it's there for a reason. But then in theory, we shouldn't shave our legs or arms either. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The answer is I haven't seen any evidence about it really. I guess be really careful around the vaginal opening. Um, hair usually does have the function of stopping like dust and particles and bacteria from getting into places where they shouldn't. Mm. Um, that's but, why we have eyelashes, right? Sorry? Yeah, like your eyelashes and eyebrows, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, most people generally will shave or wax the, what we call the mons pubis, which is the area at the front. So no, nowhere inside, it's external. Um, and that's fine as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Um, add to the <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny actually, because um, once I was, I actually asked Stacey the very same question, because when I was um, a lowly F2, doing knobs and gurney one of the um one of the consultants basically said to me who was male ironically that he thought it was really wrong but I think he was taking it from the perspective of he was seeing lots of women with ingrown hairs which turned into abscesses and all of that kind of thing so um you have to shave in the right direction if you're gonna stick to shaving and you know just be careful like Stacey says around there because that that's what I see in A&E I see the kind of abscesses and things that Oh, not necessarily nice. I don't deal with it. I send it to Stacy, but yeah. it's not nice. I believe they're yeah. very <laughs> so, um, yeah, avoid them if you can. Because yeah. women, they're not pleasant. No. That's a good thing to be aware of. <laughs> I don't think for that. <laughs> Imagine having a needle down there, is all I'll say. <laughs> that's what I will have to do. <laughs> What about, um, let's talk about cervical, cervical screening mm -hmm. and, and other things that maybe need to be checked regularly. When should somebody start getting screened? How often? Is it necessary if you're a virgin? What do you um, think? So cervical screening is screening for cervical cancer. Um, a lot of women don't actually know where their cervix is. I did have a diagram last time. I have it this time as well. <laughs> I love a good diagram. So, <laughs> your cervix is here. It's the kind of tubular structure just at the bottom of your womb. Um, for the women that have had babies, when we're talking about dilation when you're in labor, that's the bit that we're getting excited about. Um, so cancer happens when the cells in that area change from what they should usually look like. Now the screening program in the UK starts at age, well in England should I say, it starts at age 25 um, and you'll get called every three years until you're 50 and then from then it's every five years until you're 65 um, and the reason it's done between those ages is because you're at highest risk of developing cervical cancer between the ages of 25 and 45. Um, it's the 14th most common cancer in women. Um, black women are more likely to die from it because they're less likely to go to screening. And so if they get a cancer, it gets picked up later and therefore is usually less amenable to treatment. Um, but it is really, so it is really important that you go basically because it, it, the screening generally picks it up early enough for something to be done about it. Um, what was the other question? Do you need to go for your virgin? Um, in theory, no. Um, the majority of cervical cancers are caused by a virus called HPV, and that's passed on through sexual contact. Um, so by sexual contact, I don't just mean intercourse, I just mean if your genitals are touching, there's a chance that it's passed on. So that's why I say in theory not if you're a virgin, but if you've been doing other things where there's been genital contact, then you could still have picked up HPV, in which case it would still be a good idea for you to go for your screening. Um, a lot of people don't go out of embarrassment and for not understanding what happens. Um, I have a speculum here if you want to see it, actually. <laughs> I like visual things, I'm a visual learner. <laughs> um, so when you do go for your screening, we basically use something like this. This is called a speculum. It's a small plastic instrument and it basically just allows us to open up the vaginal walls so that we can see the cervix. And we just take a small brush and just brush some of the cells off the the surface of the cervix, well, the inside of the cervix, and we send that off to the lab. It's a really, really quick procedure. You'll probably spend more time getting undressed and on off the couch than it takes us to do it. So there's really no excuse to go. It's not painful. Um, so yeah, all good things really. Right. Very helpful. Um, something else having to do with taking care of things there. What about incontinence? And talk to us about the pelvic floor. Why is it important? Where is it? What is it? And what can we do to improve it? Okay, so um, 
Incontinence is when you leak urine involuntarily. So it's actually really common, particularly after childbirth, um, because it weakens your pelvic floor muscles. So your pelvic floor, um, if I go back to my diagram, I don't actually have your pelvic floor here, but it's a kind of a, a bowl shape of muscles. It's a bowl shaped group of muscles that sit underneath and it kind of goes around the vagina, around your urethra, which is the tube that connect past, where you pass urine from your bladder and around your rectum um, as well. And so it's important that you maintain really good tone in those muscles so that you've got control over when you pass urine and when you pass wind and when you have your bowels open. If those muscles become weakened, um, then that's when you have problems with incontinence. Um, <clears throat> it's particularly common after pregnancy because you've got this big ball sitting in your abdomen, sitting on top of your muscles. And then also everything has to stretch to obviously allow the baby through. Um, so those are two factors. So even if you've not had vaginal delivery, you've probably, if you were delivered by cesarean section, just the simple fact that you've had a baby in there sat on your pelvic floor will have given you some weakness. Um, so yeah, surveys of patients, they reckon that about 40% of women suffer from some degree of incontinence. Um, and a lot of women actually don't seek help for it because they don't know that there is any available. But actually you don't have to be leaking every time you cough or sneeze. Um, so yeah, if you are suffering from it, it's definitely worthwhile getting checked out. Um, <clears throat> there are two main, two main types of incontinence. So the first is stress, which is where you leak when you cough or sneeze or jump. Um, and then there's urge incontinence, which is just where you'll be fine. Then all of a sudden, excuse me, you'll feel absolutely desperate to go and you feel like you can't make it to the toilet in time and you may leak because you don't get there in time. Um, they're both managed slightly differently, but pelvic floor exercises is the mainstay of managing stress incontinence initially. And I think we're getting better as a profession at telling women about it when, they, when we're seeing them in pregnancy and in labor and making sure, like I've <clears throat> just given birth to my third child seven weeks ago now. And I know that when I've been seeing the midwives, et cetera, and the health visitor afterwards, each of them has asked me at every visit, are you doing your pelvic floor exercises? Um, so that's really important. You should be trying to do them. So I'm not very good at remembering to do them. So set a reminder on your phone, but you should be trying to do probably at least 10 contractions about three times a day. And what you want to do is, you know, if you're really desperate to go to the toilet and you squeeze the muscles to prevent yourself from going, those are the muscles you need to be squeezing. So you need to be kind of squeezing inwards and upwards. Um, and if you do that, at least 10 contractions, try and do it three times a day. You'll make your pelvic floor stronger. And so not only will you reduce your chances of leaking, it also improves sex. So there's another incentive to do it. Anything to add, Winnie? No, I think Stacey's covered it all very well. <laughs> I have a question about that. So, so say somebody's doing their pelvic floor exercises, but still not seeing any improvement. What would be the next step or, or where do um, physios come in? Because I know some specialize in pelvic floor. Like where would somebody go from there? Um, so you'd go and see your GP um, because actually it's better to have supervised your pelvic floor exercise is supervised by a physio rather than doing them yourself anyway they tend to be more effective because often we think we're doing them correctly but we're squeezing the entirely wrong thing so having physio support <laughs> is <very> helpful <laughs> um, so generally if you go and see your gp you'll refer to the physio anyway um, and you'll see them for about six months usually um, and then if that's not having any impact, you're not seeing any improvement, then there are a couple of surgical options that will be discussed with you. And also check with your midwife and your health visitor after you've had a baby, because um, depending on what area you live in, sometimes you have you can self-refer directly to a physio. Yeah. Mm. So um, definitely worth doing. Yeah. Somebody in the comments says, we're all doing them right now, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I think about it, I end up subconsciously doing it. <laughs> That's great. Um, so what about breast health? Okay. When, like, how, how do we keep a check on, on things? What about benign tumors? Should, when should we get worried? When do we, what age do we need to start getting mammograms? How does that work? So I think um, like your, your own awareness of your own body is important 
from the get-go. Don't doesn't matter how old you are. I think it is really important to know what is your normal. So what what is a normal period for you? What is like a normal, what are the normal changes in your body? So uh, when you get to certain stages of your cycle, do you notice that your breasts are tender at a certain time and when they're not tender? Um, I think it is important that you kind of do check your own um, breasts as a female regularly for any lumps, but I'd say the, the worst time to do it are probably around the time of your period when your breasts are tender, when the tissue in your breast will get swollen, will feel a bit lumpy, um, but do it do it at the end of your period so you know what is your normal if you've never checked your breasts before so like see what it feel what your normal breast tissue looks like and feels like anyway um in terms of breast screening in the uk it's um the mammogram isn't offered until after the age of 50 and upwards however if you from the age of however past puberty you are like in your early 20s it doesn't matter the age feel a new lump anywhere any changes in the skin around your breast, any inversion of your nipple, any um, discharge from your nipple, whether or not um, you think, oh, this might be okay, there's no harm whatsoever in going to your GP and getting them to, to examine themselves anyway. Um, I'd say that we're pretty, pretty awesome when it comes to breast screening here anyway. And we've got a pretty good two week um, weight referral pathway for kind of breast changes, regardless of your age. Um, if the GP's a bit worried, especially if you've got a family history of breast cancer, um, they'll, they'll refer you on. And it means that within two weeks, if you have any new symptoms that are red flags in a GP's mind, they'll refer you on to a clinic where you get seen and you will literally be examined, have imaging done and have what we call cytology. So some sort of sample of whatever the lump or whatever is going on, all done on the day. Um, so don't sit and wait on something wondering in most cases it probably is benign and probably is absolutely nothing um, but the worst thing to do is to say it's benign and then leave it and it and it and it turns out to unfortunately be something serious um, yeah. anything to add Stacey? Um, not really just that the benign ones very rarely become malignant and um, they often end up going away on their own um, the most common things you'll see are what we call cysts, so they're like fluid-filled structures or what we call a fibroadenoma. But I guess the way to tell yourself, as, as Winnie said, we advise that you examine yourself every month um, after your period, get used to what your breasts feel like. Um, the way that you tell the difference between something that's benign and something that you need to worry about is that benign things are usually smooth, they feel regular, they're what we call mobile, so you should be able to move them around in the breast. And not obviously from one side to the other, but you know, they'll move a little bit. <laughs> whereas, <laughs> whereas things that are malignant tend to feel really hard, craggy, irregular, and they'll be fixed usually to the breast tissue underneath. Um, so that's just one way of telling whether or not you need to be worried. I think that like all of that um, that you've mentioned, just being aware of your body, we haven't really mentioned that before, but I think it's so important to, to know what your cycles are like, what, what changes happen every month, to know when something is kind of off. Yeah. Um, do you recommend tracking those kind of things with an app or, or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, you can, there's lots of apps out there. Um, particularly from monitoring your periods um, and fertile windows and things particularly for people who are trying to conceive I think it's always useful because then when you if you do think you've got a problem and you go to the GP you can pull out your list and say look this is what my periods are normally like this is where my last period was because you will always be asked that question this is how long my cycle normally is this is how many days I bleed for, this is how heavy my flow is, because these are all things that you'll be asked. So it's really useful for us actually, if you have all that information to hand. Well, let's talk about periods. <laughs> that that <laughs> we all have to deal with on a regular basis. Um, what about PMT or PMS? I don't know where, maybe it's different depending on where you're from. Can we do anything about it? Do, can our diet affect our hormones? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of 
thing that we always try to fix, but can anything actually help? Um, yeah, so there are some things. So first of all, what's PMS, I guess, is the question. Um, a lot of women will experience some type of mood disturbance or breast tenderness, um, or even sometimes kind of bowel symptoms, like so changes in your bowel habit around the time of your period. Um, <clears throat> but for most women, this is quite manageable. Um, for those with really bad PMS, it can be quite debilitating. Um, it can affect relationships if they're having really severe mood swings, depression, anxiety, lashing out at people. Um, it can affect their ability to work and things like that. Um, so it's important to distinguish kind of your normal mood swings that are, so, that are really manageable for some, from something that you need help with. And also just because you're having mood swings or breast tenderness around the time of your period doesn't necessarily mean it's PMS. In order for, for it to fulfill the criteria, <clears throat> it has to occur during the last phase of your cycle. So during the two weeks before your period, and it will resolve at some point during your period. You need to have a symptom-free interval. If you're having these symptoms all the way through your cycle, it's not PMS. Um, as for whether or not there are things that can improve the situation, um, first line things, we talk about vitamin B6. There's some evidence that that may work. Um, there are other kind of herbal or vitamin remedies that are sometimes um, recommended, but the evidence isn't as robust. And by that, I mean, some studies will say they work, other studies will show no effect. Um, <clears throat> but some of the things that also work along with vitamin B6 are things like calcium and vitamin supplements. Um, so those are all good things to try. Um, other than that, kind of the next phases of treatment usually involve oral contraceptives to try and regulate your cycle. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, what you can also do with oral contraceptives is um, kind of what we call tricycle them, which is where rather than taking one pack and then having your period, another pack then having your period, you can take two or three packs back to back so that you're skipping those two periods and that helps alleviate the symptoms because you're having them less frequently. Um, as for whether or not diet impacts your hormones, again, there's not that much evidence out there. Um, what has been recommended is that you try and reduce your salt intake, uh, reduce your sugar intake, which can be difficult because particularly around the time of your period, I'm sure a lot of women will have experienced cravings. Um, and that may be in part due to your mood, maybe in part due to the hormonal changes as well. Um, but what they have said about dietary changes is that rather than just trying to change the diet during those last two weeks or during your period, you should try and have a good diet throughout the month to try and prevent those symptoms from cropping up in the first place. Um, while we don't know as much about diet affecting hormones, what we do know is that your weight definitely can. So try and maintain a healthy weight. Um, what's interesting is that you will never start your first period until you've reached a certain weight. Your body waits for you to reach, achieve a certain weight, and then it receives a signal to tell your brain to send hormones to your reproductive organs to start your first period. Um, so that's why people who are really underweight, people who suffer from anorexia, bulimia, for example, often find that their periods stop. Um, conversely, on the other hand, if you're overweight, you're carrying a lot of fat, again, the hormones produced by those fat cells will have an impact on your reproductive hormones as well. So um, if you guys if you guys have heard of PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, <clears throat> women who suffer from that tend to be quite overweight, not in all circumstances, but they can be overweight. And the impact on their hormones is generally, generally that they can have higher testosterone levels, which think, leads to things like acne and increased hair on the face, like typically in a male pattern distribution. Um, and it can also cause reduced estrogen, mean, meaning that they often don't ovulate, which is why they have difficulties getting pregnant. So those are just two examples as to why it's really important to maintain a healthy weight and how that can help in regulating your cycle. Mm. And from a personal side of things, PMS is um, <coughs> the real thing. Like I can testify, I've tracked my period enough times to know that I am a sufferer of it. Um, vitamin B6, stacey Oh, this needs to be part of the what men need to know about women's health, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a real thing. <laughs> Honestly, we don't we don't make it up. Like sometimes we don't mean to be psychotic. It just happens at the, after we've operated. <laughs> but, but honestly, like vitamin B six, it it was a life changer for me. And I'd also probably say exercise um, yeah. makes a huge difference. 
on the months that I don't exercise as much or I'm on night shifts and I don't sleep well, that has a massive impact on, on my mood come by the time I'm waiting for my period to come. So, yeah. That's great information. Somebody <laughs> asked in the comments, um, ooh, here it is, clocks and periods. What's normal and when should you start to worry? um it varies there's no kind of standardized amount that you should lose in a menstrual period um i did see an average somewhere i can't remember what it was it was probably about i think it was about 30 mils or something and if you people who have heavy periods generally lose about 80 mils and that's kind of over the course of the period so although actually it looks like a lot often it isn't um, what we have to remember is that when you're having your period, it's not just blood that's coming away. It's actually primarily the lining of the womb. So it's tissue from inside your body. Um, as for when to be worried, what I would say is if you are having to change your pad or tampon, whatever, every half an hour, every hour, if you're flooding, by the, which I mean, you can't leave the house because you're soaking your clothes, you're soaking your bed sheets at night. Um, if you're starting to develop signs or symptoms rather of anemia, so feeling really tired, breathlessness, chest pain, then that's the time that I would be seeking help really. What about pain, period pains? It's a yeah, fact of life for many of us. <laughs> um, period pain is also very, very common. Um, up to probably 90% of women will experience it. Um, as for when to seek help, it depends, it's really about when it becomes unmanageable or when you develop other, what we might call red flag, red flag symptoms or symptoms that something else is, is going on basically. Um, <clears throat> so we can divide period pain into primary, what we call dysmenorrhea, which just means painful periods. Um, and in those cases, there's no underlying cause. You're healthy, there's no what we call pathology causing that. It's just the way that it is. What happens during your cycle is that you get a release of hormones when the tissues are being broken down. It causes your uterus to contract, to expel all the tissue as your period. And as it contracts, your blood supply to the uterine muscle is restricted and that causes pain because it's not getting enough oxygen. So that is entirely normal. That's part of the process. And then secondary dysmenorrhea, which just means again, painful periods. That means there's an underlying cause like <clears throat> fibroids or endometriosis or infection and that will have additional symptoms that would prompt your healthcare professional to think actually this may be what's going on um, so if you find that you're having really severe pain it's causing you to lose days off school or off work it's not settling with your simple painkillers like paracetamol and ibuprofen if you can take those or <clears throat> what you might find as well is that your doctor will start you on the pill um, and that usually settles things. And if that's not working either, then it may be time to go and have some further investigations. Also, if your, pain, if your periods were previously pain-free and then all of a sudden you've developed pain, that again suggests that there may be something else going on. Um, bleeding in between your periods after sex, painful sex, um, bleeding from other orifices during your periods, so bleeding from the back passage or from where you pass urine. Those are all signs that there may be something else going on um, and pressure symptoms as well feeling like you've got a mass in your tummy it's causing pressure you're feeling full quite early that might suggest you've got a big fibroid so any of those types of symptoms i'd be going for further investigation well our time is just about up I just want to say, it's been uh like we've just had so much really good information so thank you so much do you have anything else you want to add on the subject either of you it's been i, I think it's been a great evening but anything else you want to, to add um i just say um we as women should really like be more open to talking about it with each other to be honest um if there is somebody in church that you know that you feel um you know um comfortable with or if you're kind of an older youth and you what like are happy to be a mentor to the younger youth I think that that's kind of valuable because I feel like as women 
we often kind of live like islands. We just stay by ourselves. We suffer in silence and then eventually decide to go to the doctor and don't quite know what to ask. Or, but when we actually talk to each other, we realize that everything that we're going through is, is a pretty common thing. Mm. Um, so just don't suffer in silence is what I would probably say. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and just, as I said, knowing where to look for information, the NHS website is always a good place to start. Um, mm -hmm. Other websites like patient.co.uk as well also have some really good leaflets. Um, the RCOG, which is the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, they also have some really good patient leaflets about things like um, <clears throat> fibroids, painful periods, your treatment options, contraception. They're really good places to start for looking for information about these sorts of things. Mm, great. Thank you, Dr. Pickard. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. It's Thanks been for us. <laughs> evening. Thank you so much for everyone that's watching. We really appreciate you tuning in and hopefully we can have more of these open discussions in the future. Um, to close tonight, I'm just going to ask if Winnie, could you close us with a word of prayer, please? Yeah, of course. Let's pray. Um, dear Lord, thank you so much for just giving us this opportunity to talk together as Adventist women about our bodies and about our health. It's often a topic that's has a taboo over it and a stigma, but I just thank you for giving us this opportunity to speak. Um, I also want to pray for the women who've been specifically touched by issues that we might have spoken about tonight. May you give them the comfort that they need if they're suffering from pregnancy loss or infertility, or they've got health issues that they just didn't know who to turn to and ask about before. May you now use this as an opportunity to open doors of communication and avenues where they know who to consult now and just um, bless each and every one of us because in the end, dear Lord, we all just want to be messengers and ministers for you and just be ready for when you come. So thank you for blessing us with our bodies and May you just help us as we continue on in the rest of this week. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.